Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with one of only two men to play in the Final Four and the World Series, Kenny Lofton. If they give Sirhoff the green light, they do, and he hits it in the air to center field. Kenny Lofton trying to time the jump, and he makes the catch! Here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the show, we've got a six-time All-Star, a four-time Gold Glove winner, and he led the league in stolen bases five times. He's a member of the Cleveland Indians Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenny Lofton. Kenny, thanks for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me, bro. So, Kenny, all right, here's my take. (laughs) You're one of the last guys that that I consider players that I played against that really had the ability to change the game with his legs. I think Ricky was the epitome of it. He did it for, you know, 20 years. But I'm talking about you getting on base late in the game, late and tight. Uh, The pitcher, me at second base, my shortstop, the catcher, every 50,000 people in the fans, we know you're stealing second base. Everybody know, and you run right in our face. I think it's kind of a lost art. I played with a lot of uh, base stealers that steal 30, 40 bags. But, but I can steal a bag in the fourth when it's seven to two and they're not paying attention to me. Um, what do you think about that? Is it a lost art today? Oh, big time. It's a, it's a lost art. Everyone right now is thinking about manufacturing runs through the home run. And it's just sad to where, for me, seeing the game right now, I can't even watch the game right now because, again, when you see a guy get on base, or if he does get on base, you're like, you got to steal. You got to make things happen. You got to make the pitcher, like, like you said, the infielders, catcher, pitcher, everyone's got to be on their toes. And when you have someone on their toes, it's not so much that they're nervous. They're more aware about what I'm doing. And in the sense, they forget about their main objective as a pitcher. You more, your main objective is to get this guy out. And sometimes they're all over the place. And like the infielders, sometimes they get out of position trying to worry about if they're going to try to see if I'm going to try to steal a base. So that artist is pretty much gone. Yeah. And, and, Man, it makes it, it makes it a lot easier when we know they're not going to steal. We're not going to take a chance because we're waiting for that home run. I remember because when I was in the American League West in the early 2000s, you know, we had, some, we had some pretty good rivalries in that division. And I remember, you know, playing the Angels as much as you do, you know, when you're in the same league. Sean Figgins, and he was, he was a real astute base stealer, and he'd get to second base. And they were big. Socia was big about putting the pressure on it. And as a second baseman, if I didn't have the right pitcher on the mound, I know guys like him, guys like you, when you get to second base, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm standing on the bag before that pitcher delivers home. You get your rhythm down. You know, you're going, you're going to steal the bag off the pitcher. And it used to drive me crazy. So I loved when I had non-base stealers out there because I didn't have to worry. I give you the couple tap, tap, come on back. But but the real base stealers, and, and I agree with you. I wasn't a base stealer, but I really enjoy that aspect of the game. And I, and I think it's getting lost a little bit. Hopefully it'll come back. But uh, yeah, very interesting. 
So you're born and uh, raised in Chicago. I want to know about Kenny Lofton growing up. What were you like as a kid? And, and I know you were raised by your grandma. You know what? I'm just going to let you take it from there. I mean, again, I was, I was raised by my grandmother um, as, a, as a young kid. I played basketball, baseball, football, ran track. But football got cut short when I was a freshman. I got – I thought I was a little Michael Vick, early Michael Vick. And I got blindsided one time and hit, and that was a wrap. I was done with football. It hurt, it hurt me so bad. But I grew up in an area where it was a lot of crime, drugs, and, you know, stuff going on and shooting and killing. But, again, I overcome that because sports – put me in a position to where I was away from that scene and um, end up, you know, getting a scholarship in basketball and playing basketball. And next thing you know, I'm playing pro baseball. You know, it, it was interesting. I had uh, Eric Davis on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He, he said the exact same thing. He grew up in LA and he said, Booney, this was my outlet you know, playing sports, going down. And he talked about growing up with, with Strawberry and Byron Scott. And he said it was our way out. And, and there, it, it, it kind of got us away from everything going on around us. And it shaped my life. And, and it's a cool story to hear, you know, when you're in that environment, that you were one of the ones that made it out of there and, and had a, a hell of a major league baseball career and, and did something with your life. Okay, let's get to, the, let's get to U of A. Uh, 1986, you go to U of A on a scholarship, basketball scholarship. By the way, I, w- I went to SC, but U of A was the place I wanted to go. And it came time for me to sign my letter of intent. Back then, we signed our senior year. It's not like nowadays where you see these freshmen in high school signing letters of intent. But I remember going on my recruiting trip, and uh, the coach at the time said, well, we're only going to give you a half scholarship. It rocked my world. I went home. Next thing you know, I signed with SC. <laughs> and, and then I hated you guys ever since then. But my whole high school, uh, my high school years, I thought, oh, I'm going to U of A. And I was floored when I didn't get to go to U of A. But anyway. Kenny Lofton goes to U of A basketball scholarship and uh, you're on some pretty awesome teams. You're playing with Steve Kershaw and Elliott. Uh, you're playing for the legendary Lute Olson. Uh, tell me a little bit about that basketball experience at the, at uh, U of A. Well, you know, again, um, I, um, I had a, like, like you said, I ended up getting a full scholarship. That was the only reason why I went to Arizona because I ended up getting a full scholarship. And um, I have some great players. I come in with Sean Elliott, um, Anthony Cook, and myself. And but my junior year, we end up going to the to the Final Four, and it was myself, Steve Kerr, Sean Elliott, Tom Tobert, uh, Jeff Bushler, Sean Rooks, Harvey Mason. All of us was on that team, and we end up losing in the Final Four. But we had some. We had some talent on that team, and I had a great time. And Lou Olson was an outstanding coach. He was a teacher of the game, and, you know, rest in peace. But he was a teacher, and we understood. And he was like a father figure to all of them. We just finished finished up the Final Four. Uh, put it in perspective for the audience out there listening to the Boone Podcast. You know, I know what it's like. You know what it's like to be in a World Series atmosphere. But, but does that translate to the Final Four? Is that kind of – I don't know if it gets bigger than the final four, especially for a college athlete. Uh, kind of compare the two. Well, again, with the college athlete, you have, you have, you have the college 
and the, the Final Four. It's your, again, it's like your World Series or your Super Bowl of college basketball. And the difference is you have the whole, I mean, state and, and the people from alumni from all over the place, and you're coming into this one area, and you have, like, in one city, you have four teams with just people all over the place. And you have rivalries of, of four teams going together. Everybody's there. And it's just, it's just an amazing, I'll just say, atmosphere. And you're going back to school, and then you'll go back to school, or if you graduate or whatever, you are back on campus to where you're just loved. And the Final Four is different than the, the World Series. The World Series, you have, you know, seven, you could, you could go up to seven games, two different cities, and either they love you in the city or they hate you in the city. So, you know, you just got to, you know, understand that there is a difference. One is just that college, just that college atmosphere of all these kids being on their own and just out there. And it's just an amazing feeling to be a part of. All right. So you finish up the, uh, the 88 season, you, you go to the final four, you come back. And at the and and this is my freshman year now, and I'm at USC. And you decide to go play baseball for a minute. I know you only got one AB, but what what made Kenny Lofton think right then? All right, I'm going to go back and play baseball again. Oh, oh, to be honest, let me tell you, I had knowing what I was dealing with on the basketball court. Okay, I had Tom Tobert. We call him the black hole. When the ball goes there, it come come back out. You had Anthony Cook. You had Sean Elliott. You had Steve Kerr. Kenny Lofton get a chance. I was the point guard when I was on the floor. When I passed the ball, I never got it back because one of those four or five guys you gave the ball to, you didn't get it back. So I'm like, okay, my talent is being diminished and not being looked at. And I felt like, okay, you know what? I'm missing baseball. I know I ain't going to get a chance in NBA because of, they didn't even see me shoot the ball because of guys, all those guys. So I felt like baseball was a perfect opportunity for me to go out and just show my individual talents. But I was like, you know, I've been a little rusty. Let me just go out and work out and just see what I can do. And I don't know. I was just missing it. And luckily, a guy who scouted me, still a good friend of mine, Clark Chris, saw me and he said, this dude got some talent. You know, he's a little raw, but I know talent when I see it. And that's what he said to me. And and. You know, I ended up signing that summer and going to Auburn, New York, rookie A ball, and it was it was a it was it was an experience. For me. Yeah, so so obviously you get one AP, but you still get drafted in the seventeenth <laughs> round by, by the Astros. You go play, you go play your rookies. I don't know where you were, low A rookie ball, whatever it was. Ooh. That had to be a huge yeah. adjustment. But not only that. You finish that, and you're coming back for your senior year where you're the starting point guard. You finish – you end up going to the Sweet 16 that year. But I was thinking about when I was preparing for Kenny Lofton tonight, and I'm going, I want to <laughs> know what it's like. Okay, you, you haven't played baseball since high school. All of a sudden, we're going to throw you into uh-huh. pro ball. And as you know, that's no easy task to just take off for three years. And, I'll, oh, all of a sudden, I'm going to go down and play with the guys that have been playing all, you know, all along while I'm on the basketball court. So you're playing minor league baseball, but you know you're going back for your senior year. So you got to hoop. Are you, are you working out hoop-wise while you're playing during the minor league season? Then you come back and play hoop for the for the Wildcats. You get are, are you taking hacks in the cage during basketball? See, I want to know how that all went. Well, for funny, in basketball, in baseball that summer, I knew I was going back. So I ended up finding a gym 
in Auburn, the place is Auburn, New York. I ended up finding the gym to go there and shoot around and, and just home, keep my skills a little bit going during that time. And it was just pretty funny. Um, if you, you know, I should go, we go on a road trip and I come back and then next thing you know, I go to the place and I say, can I just go and shoot at the gym? And I was doing that and pretty much the whole time. But then some part of the, some, uh, I think mid August, or maybe third week of August, I had to leave to go back to start school. So I had to leave my minor league baseball and go back and start school because I know I had my senior year to go. And um, it was it was pretty. I mean, but then when once basketball season, because basketball was a grind, grind basketball. School was a grind. So baseball well, again was put on hold again until basketball season was over. And then I started winning, working out and swinging and doing certain things. But it was on hold because of the the Arizona, the basketball was, it was 24-7. So, I mean, I had to kind of put it on hold until basketball was over. Okay, so, so after your senior year, basketball's over for you from a career standpoint. All said and done, yeah. I think it turned out pretty good what, what route you took, but <laughs> could you have played in the NBA? Um, I probably could have been like a, uh, if you watch a guy who plays in the NBA like a Pat Beverly, Mm-hmm. A Pat Beverly, he was a defensive guy. He was on. He didn't shoot much, you know, and he scored once in a while. But I'd have been a defensive guy in your face, all over you. That was my style, and I would have been up and down the court. But I knew that wasn't going to last, so I knew baseball was my route to go. Okay, so we get to the minor league season. You say that had to be a huge, huge adjustment. <laughs> Missing three years, going to minor leagues, and I looked at your numbers, and it, it was remarkable because I look at you. Okay, I said, okay, he's str- he's struggling his ass off when he first goes back. Makes perfect sense. He's juggling hoops, school, and minor league baseball. He hasn't he hasn't hit in three <laughs> years. But then I see the next year, ah, he's getting a little bit better. Next thing I know, you're in Tucson in '91. And I don't know if you won the batting title, but you were fighting for the batting title. So you went from struggling, all right, I got to figure this out now. I haven't played for a while. What's this pro ball about? To almost winning a batting title, and and you're playing for the Tucson, Tucson Toros. All right, before I get ahead of myself, you played in Tucson. That was the PCL back then. I played in Calgary. I was, I was a year behind you. I got to Calgary in 92. But it's kind of ironic to me. You're playing in AAA for the Houston Astros in Tucson. And you're a big hoop star. So, so are the boys coming out from U of A to watch you play in Tucson? Man, it was awesome. See some of the guys come out. Lou Dolson came out and watched me play. And it was just fun just being there. And just the, the Arizona connection, when you are an Arizona, you're like a life wildcat. You know, you're like bear, it's like bear down, you know. So people were coming out from basketball. And it was funny how it was very strange to people to hear my name at a baseball. It's like, he's playing what? No, not that's not the same guy. That's Kenny Lofton. This is some other guy. So it's like, no, you guys, this is the basketball player that's playing here in Tucson. So I had so many fans come out and talk about they respected, you know, what I did in basketball. And now they look at me here and it's like, wow, we never knew. But again, it was, it was just pretty fun to, to be a part of that. No, they didn't know. You didn't know either. All of a sudden, you're like a superhero. Like you're, you're kind of Bo Jackson. Like now, nah, I'm done with hoops. Let me go play some baseball. So that's that's pretty cool. 
All right, so let's get to uh, get called up in '91. The Houston Astros. I think right. it was a September call up. You know, at the time they got Steve right. Finley in center field, and you end up getting traded uh, to the Cleveland Indians uh, a big trade, where the rest is yeah. kind of history for Kenny Lofton. From '92 to '96, you lead the league in stolen bases every year. From '94 to '99, you're a perennial All Star, six in a row. Uh, Man, and I was fascinated. That's when I was getting in, you know, just coming into the league, and it was Jacobs Field, and it was the Cleveland Indians. You had all these stars all over the place. You got Manny and Tommy. And the guy I want to talk about a little bit that you saw up close and personal that I think doesn't really get his due in 2021, but one of the best players I've ever seen, especially from the offensive standpoint, is Albert Bell. Uh but it, but it was the Jacobs Field. It was the, you know, I don't know how many days in a row you guys sold out the stadium, but it was the hot new ticket. Tell me about those early years in Cleveland for you. Um, I think, you know, the early years in Cleveland, we were just raw. We just had some raw talent out there. We were just all trying to trying to make it. We just all felt like, you know, we've, we've, we're just so close to being right there, just watching all the other players and the other teams we knew if we just keep working at it, we was going to be, you know, worth watching and worth looking at. And again, myself, Albert, you know, Manny, Tomei, Charles Nagy, Omar. So we just, and Carlos Baerga, we just felt like Sandy Alomar. So we all felt like we just needed to keep doing what we're doing and, you know, things are going to work out, even though we were a mistake by the lake. The old stadium, and once the new stadium came in, I think that whole vibe and just that excitement just built up. And next thing you know, we didn't got what is it, four hundred and eighty-six consecutive or something. I don't know, like that going on at the date because the team, the city, was looking for something because they haven't had anything since Bob Feller in nineteen forty-eight, fifty-four, forty-eight. So they just felt like this is something that a lot of people never, never had a opportunity to be a part of and this city was just rocking and we just felt as a team you know always say when charlie manuel was there with us and he had that mindset was telling us always know thyself you knew who you were as an individual and you just had to step to that next level if you stuck with your own guns to figure out what you wanted to do you can be you can be great if you can be successful with this game and a lot of us took that to heart and stuck with what we know best and just did it. And I see that, you know, those were the years, because like I said, I was a young player at the time, and Johnny Hart came in. He was your general manager there in Cleveland. He started signing all you guys to these multi-year deals before there were multi-year deals. You know, I think, I forget what the what the minimum was there, but I remember looking over and it, it ended up working out great for him. He was just paying for serv- or for arbitration years, but he kind of started yeah. that whole trend. And, and I think you were one of the guys that, that he signed. And, you know, at the time, we're young kids. We're coming up and, and six, eight, ten million dollars when we don't really have any service time sounds pretty good. I thought that was uh, brilliant on his side, yet at the same side, at the same time, giving a little security to a young player. And, and I think that kind of, I don't know. I, it, there was something you guys had going on over there. I was over in Cincinnati. You know, we'd play that. I, I forget what they call it, the Ohio Cup every year. You know, it's kind of yeah. yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a traditional thing in Ohio that they do. But that was pretty cool. All right, I want to get to 1996. 
right before your free agency. You're a perennial all-star. Like I said, you led the, led the league in bags five years in a row. You get traded to Atlanta. I, and I was looking at it. And I'm going, wait a minute. This is kind of, something's going on here. It was almost like Johnny Hart traded you with a wink and said, Kenny, go play for them and I'll get you back here next year. Because you go to Atlanta. I'm like, did he go to Atlanta and, and have a horrible year? Oh, he hit 333. So tell me about that one year <laughs> jaunt to Atlanta. And, uh, and if that was if that was just coincidence or was there something more behind it? Because then you you end up coming back to Cleveland. It was I mean, it was more behind it. I think because the year before Albert Bell left and signed with the White Sox, so and they got nothing for it. So I think John Hart was thinking that I was going to do the same thing. But the problem I have with this whole thing is that John Hart never talked to me. He never came up to me and said, "Hey, Kenny." What's the deal? We know Albert's left us, so are you going to do the same? They didn't say nothing to me. I just went to the ballpark, 1997, spring training, next you know I'm traded. And I was devastated again. And um, I had no clue, no idea what was going on. And again, John Hart never came to me and said, hey, Kenny, let's talk what's going on. I mean, what, you know, what should we do? Let's work something. Nothing. I just got traded. But I ended up coming back in 98 if it wasn't for Dan O'Dow. It wasn't John Hart. It was Dan O'Dow. Dan O'Dow had a conversation with me, and I ended up coming back. I mean, I had a conversation with the then center fielder, Marquis Grissom. So it was funny how Marquis Grissom and, and I had a conversation about me coming back to Cleveland. He said, man, we had a conversation on the phone. He said, Kenny, these people love you here in Cleveland. If you have an opportunity to come back here to Cleveland, man, you need to come back because you don't even know what I've been listening to. Even though we went to the World Series, we lost. But, Kenny, you are the man here in Cleveland. You need to figure out. So we end up working out some things. I talked down with me and me and Dan O'Dowd talked. And next thing you know, I'm signing back in Cleveland. But it was because of Dan O'Dowd. So you signed back with Cleveland and you play there through the <laughs> yeah. uh, through the 01 season. And then you're, you're – the rest of your career gets kind of interesting. Oh, two, you go yeah. to Chicago, San Francisco, and oh, three, Pittsburgh and Chicago. Oh, four, you're with the Yankees. And I, and I think I bring this back to, you know, we opened the program talking about you were the next thing in, in my, in Brett Boone's view, uh, not to be third person, but I am being third person. <laughs> but I, you know, it, it you're the, the last five years of your career also kind of mirrored Ricky's where you were that piece to the puzzle that was missing for those really good playoffs teams. And they knew if we can get Kenny Lofton, maybe he can put us over the edge. You saw Ricky's career, how it ended. He was always in the postseason because yeah. he, he was always a, a, a commodity. He was always something somebody was trying to get to help them get to the next level. And, and you kind of played that role mirroring Ricky. Um, did you kind of when, I mean, when yeah. you went into this when you went into those seasons? Did you think, oh, am I going to be here with with the team I start with, or am I going to go play? I know I'm probably going to be in a postseason, which is kind of a cool thing. But at the same time, did you feel like, all right, they're expecting me to come in here and really put them over the top? Was there a little added pressure, even though you'd been through, you know, a hell of a career that you'd already had? Uh, so you kind of knew how to deal with this. Tell me how how that um, went when um, that portion of your career. You know, with me. With me, I understood what my, like you said, what, what I did as, a, as, a, as an individual, as a player. 
I knew my worth. And I knew that teams, if you look at all the teams in baseball at the time that I was getting bounced around, no one, no one wanted to be that true leadoff hitter. No one didn't want to do that, and most teams didn't have that. So teams are looking for a true leadoff hitter who guy who, who thought about team first and himself second. They understood me as a player, and if you talk around the league, players, coaches, staff, they knew I was a team player and I was a gamer. When it was time to, to, to go down and, and get the team to get to that next level, I felt like I was the guy, and they knew I felt like I was the guy. So teams was like, okay, we need a leadoff hitter who's going to get on base for the guys who's going to get us, like you said, a piece of the puzzle. And I felt I was that guy, and I kept getting bounced around. When teams started off early with me, they felt like, okay, he's doing what he's supposed to do, but the surrounding situation is not working out the way we want it to. We tried it early. It didn't work, and what, like you said, when when playoff teams, you know, come looking for something, they was looking for me because the teams who started with me, you know, you go to a certain point, and if it don't work, you start dumping players and salaries and all that. And I was one of those guys that they felt like is a good dump. You know, I always said, you know, when I got traded going somewhere, I said, you know what, one man's trash is another man's treasure, and that's how I looked at it with me being traded like that. So in 07, you come back home, you come back to Cleveland, where it essentially all started. I know it started in Houston, but your your career really started in in Cleveland. Um, yep. How was that in your final year? Oh, it was awesome coming back to Cleveland and just the love and the respect and uh, just the, the emotions that went back into that, knowing that I was here to try to help this team you know, get that, you know, get that ultimate goal as a World Series championship. And I just felt like whatever I could do to get back there, that's what I tried to do. And when they signed me back, I'm like, this is awesome. And it was, it was again, it's a good feeling because I knew that I, all I had to do was go out there and do what I wanted to, you know, do what I need to do to help the team. And I just felt like, again, like Charlie Manuel said, know thyself. I went out there and just did my part and hoping everyone else did their part as well. And again, I don't really talk a lot, but if something needs to be said, I would say it to guys, coach, whoever. It just it didn't matter. And I just felt like, you know, helping these guys get over the top. We were right there and we should have, you know, got to the World Series that year, but we didn't. Two thousand ten, you're inducted into the Cleveland Hall of Fame. Uh tell me about that day. I'm sure that was pretty special for you. Oh, it was pretty special knowing that, you know, this is a young kid from East Chicago, you know, have opportunity to be a part of a, of a history organization and for them to put you in the hall of fame, hall of fame means a lot when you're in an organization. I was in the organization for 10 years and to have an opportunity to be considered as one of the top players in a organization for where I came from and from where I started. It was just a, it was just a good feeling. It was a very touching feeling. All right, you played for a ton of skippers in your career. Give me a couple of your favorites. Uh, I got to say, uh, probably Dusty Baker, um, Mike Hartgrove. I, 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 you know what? I tell people, I want to put Mike Hartgrove first, but Dusty is just the, just the way Dusty, how he had to handle certain people. He had to deal with, he had to deal with Sammy Sosa. He had to deal with Barry Bob. And Mike Hartgrove had to deal with Albert Bell. 
So you have to deal with the three underneath there. But I just felt like Hartgrove was something special to deal with the characters that we had in Cleveland. It was, it was a madhouse. But I think the best manager that I played for, just the way he treated people and treated everybody with respect and love, was that Dusty Baker. He was, he was, he was, he was one of a kind. You know, it's a funny thing about Dusty. I played against him for years and years and, and maybe had one conversation with him in my life, but I felt like, I don't know. I felt like he was just my, like a family member. I, I pull into old, uh, when he, when he was managing in, uh, old San Francisco, you know, okay, and, and you got to take that, that trek from right field into the end of the visitors dugout and I walked past him and he kind of give me the head bob like, Hey Booney, what's going on today? I remember coming to the plate candlestick candlestick park. I remember coming to the plate and as a right-handed hitter, I'm looking okay. right into that dugout and Dusty's one of the few <laughs> visiting managers that I'd always catch eyes with. And, and it's almost like he was like, like I said, he was a family. He was like my uncle Dusty and I'm going, yeah, it was just something. And I always if I and I remember thinking, man, I'd love if I ever have the opportunity one day, I'd love to play for Dusty Baker. I just he's just got a way about him that is uh, it's just cool. Yeah, it and it's that. something you're born with. And, yeah. and I and I hear guys like you all the time praising Dusty and saying what a great guy he was. And, and yeah, I, I can see that because it's just, you know, some guys you get that feeling from and it's nothing that he said. It's just that's a good dude and I want to play for him. And uh, I never got the opportunity. It's just his aura. It's he's his he's aura. got something about him. He's, like you said, man. You feel yeah. like you can just it's go it's give awesome. him a hug and you don't even know him and you don't know why. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story about that real quick. It was he knows he he knows his players. He tried to figure out his players, understand his players, and I will never forget this. David Bell. He knew David Bell loved catfish. So we went into a couple cities, and next thing you know, I come in. David, we walk in the stadium. David Bell having his his locker, a to go container from this special fish place in. Whatever city we was in, I can't remember, but he knew David where David Bell like Captain and he was sitting in his locker. That's Dusty. That's that's a manager for you. To know his players. That's 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 pretty awesome. Tell me this. I'm I'm gonna give you just a little I don't know, I don't know what I'd call it, but it's since you've played at high level in hoops, someone like Lude Olson, what's the difference of playing for a Lude Olson, you know? And, and a Dusty Baker on the Major League Baseball side. So manager versus big-time college hoop coach. You're almost teaching young kids to become men. And that's, it was all about a teaching. It's about, about a, teaching message, a teaching mechanism when you're dealing with Lute Olsen. But when you're dealing with Dusty Baker, it's about understanding the mindset, the mental part of it, and going out there and doing your job and being a man about it. And I think that's the part about, there's the difference. You're, you're all, Dusty really don't have to teach. He has to just control the manage, the mannerisms and the situations of the players and the game. But in the, in college, it's almost a teach, it's a teaching moment almost every day. And that's what Luke was doing. All right. Kenny Lofton, I really appreciate you coming on, man. That was a lot of fun. And what we do here on the Boone Podcast at the end is we have the voice of the Boone Podcast, Dan Levy, come back for a question 
from the fans. Dano? Kenny, this one comes from Matt in San Jose. Kenny, what is tougher, guarding Steve Kerr one-on-one or facing Roger Clemens or Randy Johnson in his prime? Oh, wow. Uh, what a good, the good thing about Steve Kerr, what a tough part about Steve Kerr is that he was a very smart player and he knew how to roll off picks because one-on-one guarding him was pretty easy because he wasn't – he was a shooter. So how do you stop a shooter? You don't let him get the ball. And what Steve did was roll off the picks, and he, he was a smart guy to know how to play against his defense. Um, Randy Johnson, you know, think about Randy. You knew he was going to throw a ball at your head once in a while, and you knew that was going to happen. So once you, that ball came at your head, I was fine after that because I didn't know when. The smart thing what Randy would have did was not throw the ball at my head early in the game. If he threw my head at my head early in the game, basically he knew he was done. But all of a sudden, if he waited, I didn't know when that was coming. So it was always one time. He didn't do it twice. He only did it once. And Roger, you know, Roger was just a, a great pitcher, but he did have a little, you know, um, friendly friendly things with the umpires. So I just feel like I'll say it that way. I would have did better than Roger if he didn't get the little perks he got with the umpires. So, <laughs> gotcha. So, All right. Well, Kenny, thank you well, so much for coming on the podcast, man. We appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Anytime, Justin. Let me know. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know that sound. It means it is time to dip into the Brett Boone mailbag. You ready to roll? Let's do it. All right. All right, Brett, this one comes from Jose in Denver. Brett, can you dunk a basketball? Cannot. At my best, uh, maybe a golf ball, maybe a tennis ball. Right now you can? No. I said at my best, at my peak. Oh, okay. No, I could, I could never dunk a basketball. That's pretty awesome. All what right. What do you mean pretty awesome? Well, you're not, I know you're not the tallest of people, so the fact that you get up that high is pretty good. Well, I, but we still can't dunk a basketball. <laughs> Golf ball, tennis ball in my prime, maybe. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I like it. I give respect for that. All right. Back to the bag we go. All right, Brett. This one comes from friend in Cleveland, and it says, Brett, I heard you talk about Rude's backpack. What is the dumbest thing you carried around or wore every day when you were playing? Oh, shoot. All right. I got a good one for you. Mid-90s, I'm with the Reds. I caught wind of it from another player in the league. Uh, you know, and, and people have their their things they like. You know, some guys have a, a dip of Copenhagen. Some guys like to smoke a nice cigar and a cognac. But not too many. Everybody always says in the room, oh, when somebody's smoking a pipe, which is rare, they'd say, that pipe smells really good. But they never smoked a pipe. So what I used to do after the games is I'd have this satchel and I'd have a pipe in there with, you know, all the tobacco. So I'd go and, and back then, you know, we could go to a bar and maybe smoke a pipe and, and it was legal back then. So then I started thinking, I'm sick of those people coming up to me saying, oh, that pipe smells good because they know they don't have to smoke it. So I bought another pipe and it was my guest pipe. So anytime anybody came up to me and said, Booney, that, that, 
that pipe smells really good. I'd whip out the guest pipe. I said, well, why don't you join me? <laughs> that was the silliest thing I've ever did. And I did it for a year, I think. <laughs> I'm kind of proud of it. The pipe and the guest pipe. That's actually not a bad one. Did they ever partake or was it always a... Uh, oh, of course. One? Come on. Imagine the pressure. You got to do it. If you're going to come up and compliment it, you got to you gotta smoke the guest pipe. That's pretty awesome. A lot All of right. famous people smoke that guest pipe. Like who? Oh, I can't. I, I can't reveal that. It's just tobacco. No, I don't remember. I'm kidding. They're all players, whoever they were. All right, fine. Leave us guessing. That could only be someone's question for next time. My name is Dan Levy. This is the end of the podcast, and I am the technical director, producer, and the trash talker for the Brett Boone Podcast. The executive producer of the Boone Podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content for the podcast handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors, friends, and all those that really love baseball. Make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Later. Later.